In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This imagery of darkness and light is prevalent in John's Gospel. It's one of his favorite metaphors, and it's going to become even more prevalent as we move into these closing hours of Jesus' life, particularly as we move into the end of chapter 18 and on into chapter 19. He, he's used it so many times. As a matter of fact, in chapter 1, verse 7, referring to John the Baptist, he says, John came as a witness to bear witness about the light, speaking of Jesus. Then he goes on and says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus was invading the darkness that pervaded the world at that time. In his first letter, John writes, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is the epitome of light. He's the epitome of righteousness. And his son, who is the exact nature of his image, reflects that. So you have, again, this picture of darkness and light going on. He says in verse 7 of 1 John, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' His Son cleanses us from all sin. Jesus said of Himself, I am the light of the world. One of those seven I am statements. Whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In chapter 12, He told His disciples, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So what we're seeing happen here is we're, we're moving into the darkest days of Jesus' life. We're in the Passion Week. We're, we're somewhere between 3 o'clock and 6 o'clock on Friday morning, what's become known as Good Friday. Jesus is headed towards the cross. And, and as he's told his disciples, the darkness is coming. The hour has come for Jesus to do what he's been sent to do. And so what we're seeing over these last few weeks, we've been looking at two days in Jesus' life, Thursday and Friday. And I want to just real briefly go over the chronology of what's taken place. We started in, in that upper room where Jesus has shared with His disciples. They've taken the Passover meal together. He's instituted the, the Lord's Supper with them. He's broken the bread. He's given them the wine that represents His shed blood. And then He's, he's talked to them. He's shared with them through the Upper Room Discourse so many truths about what's about to happen, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then they have learned about Judas betraying him. And Judas has actually left the room. He's vacated the premises. And I was thinking about that this week, that when Judas left the room, it was the picture of the cleansing of the home for Passover. Every Jew had to cleanse his home and remove all leaven 
which represents sin from the home. And it just hit me that Judas leaving the room was like the leaven being removed from the room. He was the, the sinner. He was the one who was going to betray the Savior. And he was possessed of Satan and he walked out of the room. But then it goes on and we go into the, the garden where Jesus prays his high priestly prayer. And he, he prays so intensely that his, his sweat turns to blood. This is a time of deep darkness as these events are taking place in the life of Jesus. And it's going to move through the, the late hours of, of Thursday into the early hours of Friday morning in the garden. And as we looked at last week, we're in that garden when Judas shows up with those armed guards and they come to arrest Jesus and, and they're going to take him to the next phase of his journey towards the cross. We know that they went into the garden and this is really significant, guys. It's important that you understand what's going on here. The, these stories are so familiar to us that we, we lose sight of everything that's going on. They, they become just little Bible stories that we've heard as children and even Bible stories that we've heard as adults and we don't fully grasp the significance of what's taking place. They're in a garden and that's the garden where Jesus prayed. That's the garden where the disciples fell asleep as He prayed. And, and it reminds me of another garden where another confrontation took place. A confrontation between darkness and light. And it was the Garden of Eden where Satan came to Eve and he said to her, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree, any tree in the garden? You see, what he's doing there is he's questioning the word of God. He's bringing into doubt what God has said. And it's going to get worse because She's going to try to defend what God said, and he's going to, again, twist God's words to mean something it didn't mean. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That last phrase is in, really important to understand because what he's telling her is that when you eat of this fruit that you've been forbidden to eat of, you will be like God in the sense that you will get to determine what's right and wrong. You will become self-determining. No longer will you have to do what God says. No longer will you have to not do what He prohibits. You will be the determiner of good and evil for your own life. And see, that's been man's problem from this day forward is that we want to be autonomous. We want to be our own king, our own ruler. We want to make the determination of what's right and wrong in our own life. And from the Garden of Eden all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, that has raised its ugly head over and over and over again. As man has attempted to rule in place of God. So we come to the Garden and in verse 12, it says, This band of soldiers who had come, led there by Judas, and the officers of the Jews arrest Jesus and they bind him. What's really significant to understand is that not only were these people there, but 
According to Luke, so was Caiaphas the high priest, and so were the members of the Sanhedrin. This was a huge crowd of people who had showed up for this event because they had longed for this day for a long time. And so they arrest Jesus. Why is that important? Because they're arresting the Son of God. And once again, it's this picture of two gardens, Eden and Gethsemane. You see, in Eden, what Satan did is he attacked the Word of God. The, the rules of God, the law of God, do not eat of this tree. You can eat of all the trees, but this one. And he questioned God's word. In, the, in Gethsemane, he's attacking the living word of God. Well, how? He, he's, he's not even mentioned in this scene. He is all over this scene. You remember when Judas left that upper room, he was possessed of Satan. He, he was driven by Satan to do what he, he did. And every person in that garden, except Jesus and the disciples, are living in darkness. Darkness is attempting to overcome the light of the world. And so we see this battle once again taking place, just like took place in the Garden of Eden, is now taking place in another garden, millennium later, but it's the same battle going on. These guards arrest Jesus. They bind him and they're arresting the creator of the world, the very individual who made them. This is huge. This scene is meant to resonate in our minds because it's just not meant to be. It should not be happening. That the creator God is being arrested by the very people he made with his own hands. And he's being put on trial again. You will be like God, knowing good from evil. You're the determiner of what's right and what's wrong, what's truth and what's a lie, what's, what's false, what's true. They're putting Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, the truth on trial. See, you've got to understand that this is not a biography of the life of Jesus. That is not what the Gospels are. They are also not just a, a historical record of His life. These, these are pictures of an epic battle that's been going on since the, the creation of the world, a battle between God and the forces of evil. That garden is pervaded by Satan and his forces. Those men in that garden are controlled by the forces of evil, the God of this world, Satan. And so you have Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and you have Satan and those whom he's controlling. And it's darkness and light coming into conflict. The forces of evil. Jesus had told the disciples, I don't have much time to talk to you because the ruler of this world, Satan, approaches. But listen to what he told them. He has no power over me. Satan's going to bring his best. He's going to do his worst. And yet he has no power over Jesus. He had no power over Jesus when he tempted him in the wilderness. He still has no power over Jesus. Everything that is happening, and we have drummed, drummed this into your brains over the last weeks, everything that is happening is the will of God. And so you have these forces of evil coming, gathering, well, who? 
Well, we have Judas, we have Caiaphas, we have the Sanhedrin, the 70 members of that high religious court of the Israelites. You have the guards who came. You have Pilate eventually and Herod. You also have Satan and his demons, and you have the people of Israel who will become participants in the trial and the demand for the execution of Jesus, the Son of God. This is a power struggle of epic proportions. I love what Paul says about this. He says, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. This is not about Caiaphas. It's not about Judas. It's not about Pilate or Herod. This is about spiritual forces. In the heavenlies. Yes, these individuals, these men will be used and they will be held culpable and accountable for their actions. But ultimately, this is a spiritual battle. And I love what Paul told the Romans. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Nothing. And he explains what he means by that. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. Do you see what he's saying there? Jesus Christ was headed to the cross. And here are these men who are attempting to thwart God unknowingly, but that's really what they're doing because they're under the control of Satan. They're trying to thwart the redemptive plan of God and they're actually fulfilling the will of God in doing so because they're sending Jesus to the cross, the, the place of redemption, the, the place of hope because it's on the cross that Jesus Christ will take on the sins of the world where He will pay the price. He will pay the penalty, and satisfy the just demands of a holy and righteous God. Well, they arrest Jesus, and they take him to Annas. It tells us, verse 13, it says, They led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient for one man, that one man should die for the people. You probably recall this scene. Caiaphas got a report back from his little minions, and, and he was furious. He was angry because the rest of the Sanhedrin didn't know what to do with Jesus. He seemed to be growing in greater popularity and power. And so he says, you know nothing at all. You're morons. You're idiots. You don't get it. Nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. See, they're afraid that if they let Jesus go on with what he's doing, that the Romans are going to finally shut this thing down. Not just shut Jesus down, but shut down Caiaphas, shut down the Sanhedrin, and really bring it to bear on the people of Israel. So he's like, man, I'm, I'm willing to sacrifice this guy to keep that from happening because he didn't want to lose all that he had, the power, the influence, the luxury of life that he lived in. So Jesus is brought before Annas, who, as you will see in just a second, is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. But there's another thing going on. There's a, there's a double track to this story because we're told that Simon Peter followed Jesus from the garden to the home of Caiaphas. 
It says, Simon Peter followed Jesus, so did another disciple. We believe this to be John himself who's writing this gospel. Since that disciple, John, was known to the high priest, we don't know how he was known or why, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, John, who was known to the high priest, went out, spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door, and he got permission to bring in Peter. So the only two disciples who followed Jesus from the garden were these two men, Peter and John. The rest fled into the dark. They were scared. They were afraid. They ran. These two men followed. And so that you understand what's about to happen, kind of the chronology of events, as best as we can figure out, and we don't know exactly where all these places were necessarily, but it starts in the upper room. And they're going to move from the upper room. They're going to move to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus was arrested. From the Garden of Gethsemane, he's moved to the house of Caiaphas. Again, we don't know exactly where Caiaphas's house was, but we have a general idea. From Caiaphas's house, he's going to be sent to the fortress of Antonia, where Pilate had his headquarters. Pilate's going to do some interrogation. He's going to realize that Jesus is from Galilee. He knows that Herod, who's the governor of Galilee, is in town. And so he's going to send him to the palace of Herod. Herod's going to ask a few questions, not get any answers. And he's going to eventually send Jesus back to Pilate. And then eventually Pilate is going to send Jesus to the cross. So this is what's about to happen. And everything's going to be moving in quick succession as we move through the rest of the story. But what I want to do is, is very briefly talk about what's happening with Peter. It says in verse 17, the, the servant girl at the door says to Peter, aren't you one of his disciples? You remember that Jesus in the upper room said that, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And Jesus, or Peter vehemently denied that that would happen. Well, here we go. She says, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. He denies it. And what jumps out at me at this statement is, is one that we looked at last week from the lips of Jesus. When they said, are you Jesus of Nazareth? He says, I am he. Or as Mitchell clearly pronounced to us, he's really saying, I am. I am God, the great I am. See, Jesus, when confronted, said, I am. Peter, when confronted, says, I am not. He is denying not just who he is, he's denying his relationship with Jesus Christ. So there's two trials going on at the same time, one with Peter, and it's, it's testing his loyalty. The other one, one is Jesus, and they're testing his divinity. So let's look real briefly at Peter. They're testing his loyalty. Are you who we think you to be? Are you one of his disciples? That's the first question the servant girl asked. In verse 25, it's asked again, almost identically. You're not one of his disciples, are you? And then the th third time, didn't I see you out there in the olive grove with Jesus? And all three times he vehemently denies knowing Jesus. He swears, he curses. I don't know the man. I have nothing to do with the man. And he does exactly what Jesus predicted. His humanity failed the test. What do I mean by that? He was living in the flesh. 
He didn't yet have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And when push came to shove and when the heat came on, he collapsed under the weight of it all. See, Jesus told them in the garden, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we see that right now as Peter denies his Lord three separate times. In John 6, 63, Jesus said, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And boy, is, is that so true as we look at Peter standing in that court, courtyard lit by the flames of the fire as they're, they're trying to warm themselves. And three times in a row, he denies even knowing Jesus. See, he's operating in the flesh. He, he doesn't have the spirit to help him at this point. And he fails the test. He couldn't even come to admit that Jesus is Christ and that I'm his follower. He's afraid. And so he denies the Lord three times. But as he's under trial out in the courtyard, Jesus is on trial before Annas and then Caiaphas and then ultimately between, before Pilate and then Herod. See, the high priest questions Jesus about who he is, his disciples. He questions him about his teaching. He says, if you are the Christ, if you're the Messiah, just tell us. See, he's not wanting to believe in Jesus. He's looking for a way to send Jesus to the cross. Claim your divinity. Claim your kingship. And then we'll take that to the Roman authorities. He even says, are you the son of God? Admit that you are. Blaspheme yet again. You've done it before. Go ahead and say it right in front of us. See, they're putting his divinity on trial. And then Pilate is going to specifically ask Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? That seems to be what they're claiming. Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, are you the king of the Jews? He asks him again, so are you a king? And, and that's going to become, become so important as we move into the latter portions of chapter 18. See, Jesus is being questioned as to who he is. He's being questioned by Annas. Who's Annas? Well, Annas is the high priest emeritus. He's the former high priest. He had been the high priest up until AD 15 when he was removed. And then He's going to be replaced by Caiaphas, as we'll see. He's the patriarch of the high priestly dynasty. He's highly regarded, highly respected. And Caiaphas is his son-in-law, who's now the ruling high priest. Caiaphas was appointed and he served at the bequest of the Roman government. He owed a lot to the Roman government. He got his power from them. He got his wealth from them, his privilege from them. And then he's going to send Jesus to Pontius Pilate, who is essentially the, the Roman procurator of Judea, where Jerusalem was located. He's the governor of all Judea. He's going to send Jesus to Herod because Herod is the governor of Galilee. He's the son of Herod the Great. He, he's, he's an evil man, just like his father was. And so all of these people are interrogating Jesus and they all have questions about his identity. Who are you? What have you come to do? Pilate's even going to ask him, what is it you've done to make these Jews so angry at you? They say that you claim to be the Messiah, but now they're going to kill you. What did you do? How did you make them so angry? So Pilate, fast forwarding, 
is, is curious about this man. He's curious about who Jesus is. And he calls to Jesus and he says, are you the king of the Jews? See, that's the question in his mind. That's the charge that, that's been brought. He could care less about blasphemy. But this has his attention because the Jewish religious leaders are saying this guy claims to be the king of the Jews and that's a threat to Caesar who's the one true king. And so Pilate asks him, are you the king? And Jesus responds, he says, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? I love how Jesus always answers a question with a question. And, and Pilate responds, he says, am I a Jew? I'm not one of you. He says, your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? This, this is a personal problem between you and the Jews. Your own people are turning you in, he says. He, he can't understand it. Why aren't they rallying behind you? If you are indeed the king of the Jews, why aren't they fighting on your behalf? And it reminds us of what John wrote in verse 11 of chapter 1 of his gospel. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He later on says in verse three, or chapter 3, verse 19, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. See, this is all about spiritual warfare. This is all about light and darkness. This is all about Satan and the forces of evil against Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and His Father. See, Pilate can't understand why this is happening. And Jesus goes on to talk to him about his kingdom. And this is really important for us to understand. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. He's going to set apart. He's going to differentiate and contrast his kingdom with the kingdoms of this world. Standing before Jesus, or let's flip it. He's standing before Pilate. Pilate is the most powerful man in Jerusalem at that moment. He works for and reports to and has been appointed by Caesar, the emperor of Rome, who considers himself to be a god. So you have the forces of this world standing before Jesus Christ, the Son of God, light and dark. So Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. This is an interesting statement because, once again, every time John says the Jews, he's referring to the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas, Annas, all those members of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. He said, my people would have fought for me if my kingdom was of this world. But see, he's talking about a different kind of kingdom. He says, my kingdom is not from the world. It's not like Caesar's kingdom. It's not like Pharaoh's kingdom. It's a different kind of kingdom and it has a different kind of purpose. So that's when Pilate asked him again, so you are a king. You're admitting that you're a king because you have a kingdom. And what's important to understand about that word kingdom in a New Testament context, when we hear kingdom, we think of a place. We think of a realm. We think of, you know, the king of England, the king of France. In both Old Testament and New Testament wordage, it, it doesn't refer to a place. It refers to rule and authority. See, Jesus is talking about his rule and authority, his right to rule. Not so much over a place, but just his right to rule. 
And so he says, are you a king? And Jesus says, you say that I'm a king. You're saying it. He's not denying it or necessarily confirming it. He says, you say that I'm a king. But listen to what he says. For this purpose, I have come. You're asking, am I a king? And Jesus is going to make it painfully clear that, yes, I am. He is the long-awaited king, but he's come in a way that nobody expected. That's the whole point of this chapter. As a matter of fact, it's the whole point of the gospel. It's about Jesus coming to be king. He is the fulfillment of the promise made by God to King David. What did he say? When your days are fulfilled, King David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made forever, made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now we know that this promise was partially fulfilled in Solomon, the son of David. But his kingdom didn't last. Upon his death, his kingdom was split in two. And we ended up with the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And there would come a time when all those nations, or all those two nations would end up in exile and there would no longer be a king sitting on the throne of either Israel or Judah. So part of this is not yet fulfilled until when? When Jesus showed up. See, Jesus fulfilled this. Jesus was the seed, the offspring of David, and he fulfilled this promise. He completed what God had said would happen. And he says, for this purpose, I was born. He says, so you are a king. He says, yes, for this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world. He came to be king. Now, that may be news to you. It may be old news to you. But what I want you to wrestle with is that this is the essence of the gospel. Yes, Jesus came to die for your sins and my sins. Yes, Jesus came to redeem us. Jesus did all those things, but if he was not king, he never could have accomplished it. He came to be king. He says, this is the purpose for which I was born. This is the purpose for which I came into the world. This is the truth that he came to reveal, his rule and his reign. You remember back in the Garden of Eden, what did Satan say to Eve? He said, if you eat of this tree that's been denied to you by God, you will become like God, knowing good and evil. And from that point forward, mankind has been trying to figure out what's right and wrong on their own initiative. They want to control the narrative. They want to be the ones who say this is right and this is wrong. And man, we're seeing that in spades right now, aren't we? We're seeing people say that there's no such thing as a difference between the sexes. There's no true gender. You, you can be a man and decide that you want to be a woman. You, you, all of these things are men trying to say, play God and say what's right and what's wrong. But see, Jesus says, I came for this purpose. The rule and reign of Jesus is so significant. He was the long-awaited king of Israel. He had come in order to reign. 
But see, what the disciples didn't understand, what the Sanhedrin didn't understand, Caiaphas, Annas, none of them understood is that his reign was going to look distinctly different than what they expected. He had been born the heir to David's kingdom and throne. And he was going to rule on the throne of David. He was going to rule like David. He was going to be the perfect David, the perfect king, the shepherd of Israel. But he also came to do what? To defeat the forces of evil and darkness, which takes us all the way back to the beginning, the literal beginning. In the beginning, darkness hovered over the world. Light came into the world and the light was good. In John chapter one, Jesus, the word of God is the light that gives life to men. See, this has always been about darkness and light, evil and goodness, righteousness versus wickedness. That's why he came. If you look at the Gospel of Luke in chapter 17, the, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they said, when will the kingdom of God come? They expected the kingdom of God. They longed for the kingdom of God, but in a particular way a kingdom that would set up some king like a new David who would rule and reign and conquer the Romans and any other enemies of Israel and put them back on the map politically, financially. And Jesus replies to them, the kingdom of God can't be detected by visible signs. In other words, you're not going to see it when it comes. You won't be able to say, here it is, or it's over there. For the kingdom of God is already among you. When John the Baptist came, he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus picked up that same message and repeated it over and over again. The kingdom is at hand. It is among you. It is here. I am here. I am the king. See, his miracles, every miracle that he did was proof of his power over the physical world. Taking lame people and, and making them walk, helping the blind to see making the mute be able to, to, to speak and the deaf be able to hear, those all proved that he had power over the physical world and every demon he cast out, think about this, every demon he cast out showed that he had power over the spiritual world, power over darkness. He cast them out. He cast out those who worked for the God of this world. And in doing so, Jesus proved that he had greater power than Satan himself. See, he was always demonstrating his kingly power and authority. I love what he says in Matthew. If I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has already overtaken you. The Pharisees said, you're casting out demons by, by the power of Satan. And he goes, no, that's ridiculous. That's illogical. That makes no sense. But if I cast them out by the spirit of God, then the kingdom is already here. It's overtaken you. They just didn't recognize it. In 1 John, John writes, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's something we miss in this story, that we don't understand that that's really why he came. If he doesn't destroy the works of the devil, there is no salvation. There is no hope. There's no heaven. There's no redemption. There's no forgiveness of sin. He told his disciples in chapter 12, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. This is the end of the road for Satan. Now, Satan is still alive and well. Satan is still out doing his thing, but he is no longer in control. His days are numbered. His future is already set. We know how the story ends. We, we studied the book of Revelation together. We know what happens to him. 
But see, the kingdom came with Jesus. The king had come. He came to earth. And the battle, that epic battle that started in the Garden of Eden is still going on, but it's about to reach its climax. Where? On the cross. And we'll look at that next week. See, Jesus didn't die to become king. He was the king who came to die. Huge difference. You know, he didn't, he didn't become king when he ascended back into heaven and sat on the right hand of his heavenly father. No, he was king when he came. He was king at his incarnation. He was coronated, so to speak, at his crucifixion. He said, if I be lifted up, terminology is, that relates to a coronation, if I be lifted up, all men will be drawn to me, he said. See, Jesus was the king who had come to die. He was the sovereign who became the servant, the suffering servant. That's what makes this story so incredible, guys. He wasn't just some itinerant rabbi that was walking around preaching gibberish or good moral lessons who happened to die a martyr's death. No, he was the son of God who came to earth as the king, not just of Israel, but the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he came to rule and reign. Does he rule and reign in your life? See, Pilate is struggling. Pilate doesn't understand what he's saying. Pilate says, what's the truth? You, you talk about truth. What is truth? What a great question. It's the question everybody asks today. This, this past Sunday, uh, Dr. Murphy talked about this issue that, that we face in the world today where there is no truth. It's all relative. It's all fluid. You have your truth. I have my truth. That's so wrong. It's so incorrect and it's so deadly and dangerous. See, he says, what is truth? And, and we know from the lips of Jesus that he is the truth. What's the truth? That he is the king of kings, that he is ruling and reigning in righteousness even now. And he should rule that way in my life and in your life. John tells us in chapter 1, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is truth. He is the truth. He is full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came about through Jesus Christ. So when Pilate says, what is truth? He's staring at him. It's the man standing in front of him who he will soon allow his soldiers to cram a crown of thorns on his head and put a, a robe, a purple robe around his shoulders. They will mock him. They will spit on him. But the truth is he really was and still is the son of God, the conquering king. But see, he didn't show up like anybody expected. He, he was not the epitome of kingliness. He didn't come riding on a white horse. He came in the foal of a donkey. But he had come to defeat the ruler of this world, and he did. Over in Colossians chapter 2, Paul says this, Disarming the rulers and authorities, he has made a public disgrace of them, triumphing over them, where? On the cross, by the cross. How did Jesus defeat the ruling authorities at the cross. That was his place of victory. That's the place where Satan was defeated. That's where darkness met its match because the light of the world was lifted up and illuminated the darkness through his own death in our place. 
I love this from Peter. This is in, uh, recorded in the book of Acts and Luke records it, but it's, it's Peter and it's a prayer. Listen to what he says. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. A, a reference back to Genesis 1 where we started. Who the, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers who gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. He, he's asking this question. Why did these people, these Gentiles, Pilate was a Gentile, Herod was a Gentile, and the peoples, which is a reference to the Jewish people, why did they plot? Why did the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers of the earth gather themselves together against the Lord and his anointed. Then he goes on and he says, For truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. There's that, that motley crew that gathered, not just in the Garden of Gethsemane, but in the courtyard of Caiaphas and ultimately at the fortress of Antonio and then beneath the cross, they gathered against your holy servant, Jesus. But look what he says. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This was all the will of God. This was the forces of evil coming against the forces of light. And guess who's going to win that battle? They thought they won because Jesus Christ was crucified. Jesus Christ did die. Jesus Christ breathed his last and was placed in a tomb. But what they didn't know was that it really was a victory. They had lost the battle. Satan lost the battle that day. So I love how chapter 18 ends. It's a sad indictment, though, on mankind because Pilate thinks Jesus to be innocent. He's convinced of his innocence. He sees no reason for this man to die. So he goes to the Jews and he stands before them. They're gathered there in the courtyard and he says, so do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews or Barabbas? Now he's referring to Jesus as the king of the Jews, not out of respect because he knows it's irritating the Jewish leaders. So he says, do you want me to release to you this king of the Jews, Jesus? Or do you want Barabbas? And they cry out, not this man, not this king, not this Messiah, not this savior. We'll take Barabbas. And he goes on to describe Barabbas as a robber. Now you may not notice it, but you will by the time you do your discussion questions. There's something significant going on here. Because they are demanding the death of the king and the release of a criminal. And that Jesus is going to go to the cross and die a criminal's death. And Barabbas is going to walk away a free man. So here's your first question to consider. I want you to go look at Luke chapter 4 verses 16 through 18. And it's a picture of Jesus in Nazareth in the synagogue. And he's read from the book of Isaiah. And he's going to say, this has been fulfilled in your midst. And that passage should speak into your mind when you think of Barabbas walking away a free man. How does this passage influence your reading of John 18, verse 40? Barabbas was once in prison, sentenced to death, and he walks away free and alive while Jesus goes to the cross in his place. 
Secondly, why should it make a difference that John is describing a cosmic spiritual battle and not just a moment in history? Why is that so important for us to get our heads and hearts around? That this is an epic battle that has been going on since the Garden of Eden and will continue and will not be completed until Jesus Christ returns the second time and sets up His literal kingdom on earth in Jerusalem, sitting on the throne of David where He will reign for a thousand years. Why is that so important? Then finally, why is the kingship of Jesus so vital? And how have we minimized it to our own detriment? See, we love to talk about Jesus as our Savior. We love to think of Jesus as our friend. He's, he's the substitutionary atonement. He's the one who makes possible our right relationship with God. He's our ticket into heaven. However you view Jesus, the one way most of us don't view Him is that He is your King. He's the conquering King. He has defeated darkness, the forces of evil. He has claimed the victory so that you can enjoy the benefits. That's a significant thing to think about. That's a powerful truth that we need to get our heads and our hearts around. So as you think about these questions, as you talk about them with your friends, your family, I want you to wrestle with these because guys, we're moving very quickly to Easter. And my hope, my prayer is that this Easter will be the most powerful Easter you've ever celebrated, whether you do it at home virtually or you come to the church and celebrate in person. These next few weeks are going to take us deeper into the gospel truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus than we've probably ever gone before. And I hope it changes us forever. Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for the time they've taken to watch this video. I pray that they would get together with another man, another group of men, someone who they could discuss these great truths with and wrestle with them and allow them to change them from the inside out. Father, I want to recognize your son as the true conquering king, not sometime in the distant future, but right now he lives and he rules and he reigns in my life. Would you help me to live like I truly believe that? And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, your son and our savior and our king. Amen. We'll talk to you guys next week. Thank you.